in, you may be seated. As you do so, I invite you now to join me and the people of God gathered in worship for each of us to take our copy of God's Word. And we turn together to our two passages for this morning, John 12, 21 and Acts 17, 6. If you'll turn to the Gospel of John and find chapter 12, verse 21, and then just a couple books over is Acts, and we'll look at verse, or chapter 17, verse 6. As we have been spending months now preparing for this occasion, I have found this to be true for myself, and, and maybe it's just true for me, and I hope it's not true for anyone else. But I find it can be easy and tempting to think of this bicentennial in just human terms. We've made all these preparations. We've done a good job. And even think over the history of church, we're, we're here, we're, we're celebrating a bicentennial because we've made the right decisions, we're the good leaders, and we've, we've had good leaders over the years to lead this church. That this becomes a day where we just want to pat ourselves on the back to, to look, at the, look at the mirror and, and say, you're wonderful. And, and you've done a wonderful job here. But if we do that, then we've missed the whole point, haven't we? Because the ultimate truth is that there's a bicentennial only because of God. There's only 200 years because of God and His love and faithfulness to this church. And in His gracious sovereignty, God has chosen to use our response, Bethel's response of love and faithfulness to Him to sustain us, to grow us, to, to walk with us through tough times, to rejoice with us in wonderful times, to do all this for His glory. So we're happy to see so many family and, and, and friends here. But it isn't about you. And it isn't about me. This is about God. This is about our sovereign God and His loving and faithful work in and through this little congregation and this small town and this little tiny state that people like to make fun of whenever they travel through here. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to explore more of God's love and faithfulness in our two passages, in the Gospel of John and the book of Acts. So as you find your place there, let me pray for our time together in God's Word. Our good God and Father, we, we come to you now and pray, asking that you would forgive our faults and our offenses, that you would illuminate us by your Holy Spirit, that we may have the true understanding of your Holy Word. Give us the grace that we need, that we may handle it purely and faithfully for the glory of your Holy Name, for the edification of your church, and for our salvation. We ask these things now in the name of the only and blessed Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. John 12, 21 and Acts 17, 6. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. And in John 12, we'll actually begin in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Acts 17 will actually begin in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, 
And they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring Paul and Silas out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And they were shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. In December 1823, there was a petition from a church in Winsboro, South Carolina, that was included in the Legislative Journal of South Carolina. And this petition sought to legally incorporate a church, Bethel Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, as being a particular and organized church in the town of Winsboro, South Carolina. And that serves as the birth notice of Bethel ARP. But as we know with any birth account, the story doesn't really begin at birth. There's always a story that comes before it. Now, we haven't found any records yet from before this 1823 petition. But what we know through the history of this town, of this, of this area of, of Presbyterianism, we can safely assume that before December 1823, there were a group of Reformed Presbyterian Christians who were meeting here in Winsboro. And they were either individually, or from their lineage of family, Scot-Irish Presbyterian immigrants who had made their way here either from Charleston and Low Country, or down from Virginia, or even down the Scot-Irish Trail from Pennsylvania. And their story goes back to Scotland and the reformer John Knox. And that story goes back to the Reformation of Martin Luther and John Calvin and so on and so forth. As we kind of keep backtracing the story, we find that what began in December 1823 as Bethel, ARP, and Winsboro actually goes all the way back to the book of Acts and chapter 2 and the account of Pentecost and the birth of the church in Jerusalem that Jesus had ascended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit down upon his people, and the church was born on Pentecost in Jerusalem. And that's amazing to think, isn't it? That our story doesn't begin today, or begin on this day some 200 years ago. It goes back 2,000 years. That the bicentennial of our church is actually just a microcosm of a bigger story. That our story isn't meant to stand on its own. But it's a part of a, it's a part of and connected to the greater and fuller story. That the birth of every church that professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're just one little part of a great and bigger story. And for the past several weeks, we have been studying the Pentecost and all that surrounded it. And one detail we have mentioned but we haven't fully explored is that as we think of Pentecost as the birth account in the early church, there is a connection of that birth account to another birth account. We go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the story of the creation. The birth of all things by God, creating all things in the span of six days. And when we read through that account, we find that in those first five days of creation, God spoke all things into existence. When he commanded, let there be light, there was light, and so on and so forth. And yet when we come to the sixth day, God does something different and unique. On that day, when he created man... God didn't speak humanity into existence. Rather, 
God put his hands in the dirt of the earth he just created, and he formed and fashioned Adam. And do you remember what God did after he formed and fashioned Adam out of the dirt of the earth? He bent over Adam, and he breathed life into him. This divine CPR. The breath of God brought life to Adam. And then, a little bit later, he takes a rib from Adam. And he creates Eve. And we believe the account assumes and implies that God also did the same thing with Eve. He bent over her and breathed life into Eve. Divine CPR of life. It was the breath of God that brought Adam and Eve to life. It was the breath of God that brought humanity to life. On the sixth day, with the crowning act of creation, of creating man and woman in the image of the triumph God, God personally breathed life into them. It was the breath of God that brought life into humanity. All the parts and pieces were there. Forming Adam out of the ground. Forming Eve out of the rib of, 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 of Adam. But it took the breath of God to bring life into humanity. Now we come to Pentecost. And the 120 disciples are gathered up in the upper room and they are praying. They are, they are waiting on Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. And they are praying. And what happens? The Holy Spirit descends upon those people, those 120 in the upper room. But do you remember how the Holy Spirit descended? With the sound of a mighty rushing wind and, and, and like flames of fire resting upon their head. Now we remember from the Old Testament that God would make himself known in the flames of burning bush to Moses. That he was the pillar of fire that guided his people during the exodus. But what I want us to think about this morning is the wind. Because the Greek word used in this passage for wind is also the same word for breath. So think about then what we learn. That it was at Pentecost that God the Holy Spirit breathed on the 120 in that room, giving then life to the church. All the parts and pieces were there. They were praying. They were waiting on the promises of Jesus. But it took the Holy Spirit of God as a breath, the mighty rushing wind coming through there to breathe life into the church. How do we know that? Because we have evidence. What did they do next? What did 120 do next? Pat each other on the back and go, wow, we're pretty super spiritual. God the Spirit came to us. All those other jokers aren't out there aren't as spiritual as us. What do they do? God the Spirit has breathed on them. And they go out to the thousands gathered for Pentecost and they begin to tell them about Jesus. And then Peter, that stubborn, so quick to, to speak, fisherman turned disciple, stands up in front of the thousands at Pentecost and he boldly declares the salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And Luke tells us some 3,000 people were saved that day. And the church was born. The parts and pieces were there. But it took God the Holy Spirit to breathe life into his church. All that they needed that day was the breath of God to give life. That's what God the Holy Spirit did on Pentecost. And that's what God the Holy Spirit still does to this day. Every church that professes 
and follows Jesus Christ and his word has this life from God the Holy Spirit and has been called then to share this life with others. Our name Bethel comes from where in the Bible? Quick, Bible quiz. Anybody remember where it comes from in the Bible? We should put this on our membership application. It comes from Hezekiah 16. I'm joking. There's no book in the Bible called Hezekiah. It comes from Genesis 28. And it's the story of Jacob. And he sees a heaven, or he sees a ladder stretching from from earth to heaven, and on it, angels are ascending and, dis- and descending on this, on this ladder. And, and Jacob's amazed that he's given this vision by God, and he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. So implied in that name Bethel is life. Not just physical life, but a spiritual life. A house of God must have spiritual life, mustn't it? A house of God must have a spiritual life that can only come from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We cannot truly be a Bethel without the breath of God, the Spirit, in it. Our very name and existence implies the life of God in and through us and the ministry of this church. In our two passages this morning, we see these statements of life, kind of contrasting statements. But they are statements of life of life for us as God's people individually and collectively as his church, and in particular here at Bethel ARP. And so our first passage comes from the Gospel of John. Years ago, towards the end of seminary, my wife Beth and I had the opportunity to visit the historic independent Presbyterian church in Savannah, Georgia. If you've ever been to Savannah and done a tour, you're probably familiar with this. It's a beautiful historical church in downtown. It sits on one of the many squares there in Savannah. As you walk through the big wooden doors of the church and into the sanctuary, your eyes are immediately drawn to the pulpits. It's this beautiful mahogany pulpit. It sits somewhere between 20 to 30 feet above the floor. Matter of fact, to get to it, you have to take two flights of stairs. As you come to the top of the second flight to go out into the pulpit area, the last thing you see is a little gold plaque. And on that gold plaque are engraved these words, Sir, we would see Jesus. So every Sunday at Independent Presbyterian Church, when the pastor prepares to enter into the pulpit to preach the word of God, the very last thing he sees are those words, Sir, we would see Jesus. And as far as I'm concerned, that should be on every pulpit in every church around the world. We find that this statement comes from this story here in the Gospel of John. And this is taking place after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover week. And crowds and crowds of people come, thousands and thousands of people have come to Jerusalem, have come up the mountain to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in that crowd are a group of Greeks. Now for our, our, our Bible people here, that should probably get our attention. Because who is it we normally think of coming up the mountain to Jerusalem, to the temple, and to celebrate these feasts, to celebrate the Passover? It's the Israelites, right? It's God's chosen people. But here we have Greeks. They're Gentiles, but they're God-fearers. They have heard about God somewhere along the line. They begin to follow God. They can participate in synagogue worship, but they don't undergo circumcision. 
And therefore, they don't have full reception to Jewish religion. So although they have come to worship at the feasts, they can only make it as far as the temple's outer courtyard. They can't make it in to the first level because they're outsiders. They're Gentiles. They're the uncircumcised. They are literally outsiders. And it's these Greek outsiders who come and they come to Philip. And what do they say? They have one thing on their mind. And what is it? It's Jesus. They don't care about what's going on at the temple. They, they don't care what's going on. They come, they come to Philip and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Maybe they, maybe they were there to hear Jesus' sermon on the mount. Maybe they heard rumors about Jesus feeding the thousands of people with very little food. Maybe they heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Whatever it is, they're now compelled to come to Philip and make the polite yet firm request, Sir, we would see Jesus. But this isn't a, 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 a request of curiosity. They're not coming to see the, the, the circus sideshow freak who can turn water into wine and walk on water. Because John gives us a clue earlier in the gospel about why they come looking for Jesus. I want us to think about how John opens up his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here's the key. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Why do the Greeks come? Because they want to find the one who is life. They want to find the one who gives life to all who seek it. They want the life of Jesus. And this theme of life is prevalent in the Gospel of John. For the past couple of, of Wednesday nights, we have been looking at Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. That woman gets up on a morning, uh, one morning, and she goes out to get water from the well for her fam for her family. Jesus shows up, and you remember Jesus has this interaction with her, and Jesus asks her, "We give me, uh, we give me a cup of water." The conversation continues, and eventually Jesus says to her, "I have something better than the water as well." Do you remember what he offers her? Living water. I can give you water, uh, this living water, where you'll never thirst ever again. I am the one who can give you eternal life. And that, that theme of life continues here with the Greeks. Because now they're the ones who have come to seek the one who is the light of life for all who seek him. They've grown tired of living in spiritual darkness. They know there's more. They're tired of being blind to what's truly good and beautiful. They know there's more. And all they want is one thing. Sir, we wish to see the one who is the life giver. We want to see Jesus. And therein is part of the glory of the gospel, isn't it? As Jesus says later on in the passage, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, the gospel gives life. It gives spiritual life because it gives the life of God. The gospel is in part the Holy Spirit breathing life into each of God's people. 
A, a spiritual life, a life eternal, a, a life of joy, a, a life of blessings. It's a life of being God's beloved child. It's only a life that can come through the Spirit of Christ breathing upon His people. And it's that life that has been proclaimed at this church for 200 years. And there's three different locations. That life has been proclaimed from the pulpit of Bethel ARP and Lord willing for 200 more years will be proclaimed unless Jesus returns. Because whenever we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are proclaiming the life of Jesus Christ. The life that comes from Jesus. The life the Greeks were seeking, the life that we should be seeking. I was listening to a a sermon this past week and the pastor shared this this wonderful illustration about the Puritans explaining the the life portion of the gospel. And they said, imagine you're in a courtroom and sitting on the bench is God as the judge wearing his black judge robes and you are there. The case is against you. And the case is this. You are a sinner. And you are sinful. And you have sinned against God. And here are the litanies of sins that you have committed. And it's taken days and days to read through every sin you have committed throughout your life. And at the end, everyone in the courtroom knows you are guilty. You have committed every single one of those sins. You have sinned against God. You have sinned against others. You are guilty. But before the gavel is banged down, hammered down, Jesus Christ steps forward. And he says, Father, I have paid for their sins. I have lived perfectly for them. I have died on the cross for them. See, Father, here are my wounds. I love them. And I've died for them. And the Father, the judge, pulls back the gavel. And he says, you are not guilty by the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel tells us then that God the judge stands up and he takes off his judgely robes and he comes down and he embraces you and he says, come home now with me and be a part of my family. My other children are now your siblings. You can sit at my table and feast. You can come to me anytime and I will hear you. You can take my familial name upon you. Come home now with me and I will give you life. So often we think the gospel just stops and that we've been pronounced justified from our sins. But the gospel goes further than that because we've been justified we have now been adopted into God's family and we now have life. The life that Jesus brings, the life that the Greeks sought, the life that Jesus has proclaimed for 200 years it is in Jesus that is this life. And that's why we always ask, sir, we would see Jesus because he is the life giver. And when we look at our Acts passage, we find the opposite reaction of the Greeks. We find that Paul and Silas have come to Thessalonica 
And they've come to, to share this gospel, this gospel of life of Jesus Christ. And, and people were responding, Jews and leaders and, and other people. They were just like the Greeks. They, they heard this and they said, we want to see more Jesus. Thessalonian Jews get upset about it. So they go seeking for Paul and Silas. And they end up at the house of Jason, a disciple of Jesus. And because they can't find Paul and Silas, they, they grab Jason and they bring him before the, the authorities. And they, and they make this accusation. These men... These wretched men have turned the world upside down and they've now come here also. And they don't mean this positively. This isn't good news to them. They wanted nothing to do with what Paul and Silas were preaching. They've seen the world turned upside down because the life of the gospel has been proclaimed and it's turning their city upside down. In their own backyard, everything is changing when the light of life was proclaimed, they couldn't stand it. They liked their world the way it was. Everything was nice and comfortable for them. They liked living in spiritual darkness. They, they, they thought they liked being blind to the grace and beauty of Jesus Christ. This is like John Lennon saying in, in Strawberry Fields Forever. Living is easy with eyes closed, misunderstanding all you see. Not only did John Lennon live by that, that's how they're living here in the book of Acts. There are only two reactions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the reaction of, sir, we would see Jesus. So I may embrace the life that Jesus Christ gives. Or... I don't want my world turned upside down and you keep him at an arm's length. Because you like your world the way it is. And you don't want Jesus to turn it upside down. So you'd rather stay blind. And what we see here is either we can be like the Greeks and John and we can embrace the life of light that is Jesus Christ. Or we refuse to have our world turn upside down. And this morning we are celebrating 200 years of God's faithfulness and love to his congregation. That he has enabled us to see the light of life that is Jesus Christ. And he has used Bethel to turn the world upside down now for some 200 years. And think about what this entails. We have, we have a sample of it here. All the members who have come and gone in this church, the, the births here, the, the, the baptisms over here, the, the weddings right here, the funerals just, just a couple blocks away behind the Barn Express. All the Sunday school classes taught up there, the, 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 the numerous vacation Bible schools over the years. How, how many times has this church gone up and down the road to Bon Clarkin? That all the sermons preached from this pulpit, all the, the hymns and the, and the psalms sung. It's all this life being proclaimed, the, the world being turned upside down right here at Bethel. Because Bethel has believed that Jesus reigns and Jesus saves and Jesus leads. For 200 years, people have been coming here to see Jesus and to have their world turned upside down. I don't think this is an alarmist thing to say. But I, I believe we, like other faithful Christians and churches, now stand at a crossroads as a church and as a people. 
Because I believe it's safe to say that the world changing around us is changing at a very rapid pace. It's hard to keep track of all the cultural and societal norms that are changing seemingly almost daily. And what do we as Christians find? We find that what we believe to be right, we're now being told is wrong. And what we believe to be wrong, we're now being told is right. And God forbid, if you're wrong in this culture and society, it can mean the end. Uh, it can mean the end of your employment, the end of your of your business. It can be uh, all sorts of destruction in your life. It's not easy being a Christian in the twenty first century. It's hard, and it makes it messy. And we don't like messes, do we? We we face the temptation. That because it's so hard out there, we don't want to be messy. And the more we avoid the mess, then the more we're turning our church into a museum. Now don't get me wrong, I love museums. Maybe it's kind of nerdy for me to admit out loud, but, but I love museums. I love going to the state museum and, 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 and seeing all that. But, but generally speaking, what are museums generally filled with? Old dead things. It's filled with relics of the past or reminders of what we used to be. And when we try to avoid this messiness to to not embrace this life and share this life, then then we're going to turn to a museum. And, And one of the first signs that we're turning to a museum is when we adopt the famous seven last words of a dying church. Do you know the famous seven last words of a dying church? We've never done it that way before. We've never done that way before. We can't do that. We, we, can't, we can't make that change. We, 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 can't, we can't do things to further the ministry because we haven't done it like that for a hundred years. And we tend to forget every tradition has to start somewhere. But change is scary. It can be messy. And so we become more inwardly focused. We, we begin not to worry so much about the ministry of the church as much as we worry about what, what the church looks like. We have a beautiful church. I'm biased in saying that because the church pays me. They pay me to say that. But I also believe that. This is a beautiful church. It's a historic church. But we turn to a museum when our focus becomes everything has to look Right? Everything has to be in its proper place. We don't care about what the church is doing as long as it looks good. And everybody here is wearing the right clothes. And, and, and they're saying the right things and they have the right skin color, right? And, and they run in the right crowds. And in a church as a museum, all the children are to be seen and not heard. Sit there prim and proper. And when we do that, when we try to avoid the messiness of gospel ministry and work by becoming so inwardly focused, then we will become like a museum. And there won't be a tricentennial. There'll just be memories. A picture here and there, maybe we can find on the internet. 
A hundred years from now, somebody goes through a family Bible and says, oh, here's a, here's a bulletin from Bethlehem from their bicentennial service. That's how wonderful. Stories passed down through the generations of when Bethel used to be a church. You see, life in and for Jesus, turning the world upside down for his glory, will get messy. Do you know how we know that? Because Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. It wasn't safe. It wasn't sterile for Jesus. He was beaten within an inch of his life and he was crucified on the cross. It wasn't easy for Jesus. And look at how Jesus' followers have been treated throughout the years. Look at how Jason and his family have been treated here in this, in this passage. But it's worth it. It's worth it to get messy. My wife loves to bake. And she's good at it, as you can tell by my very svelte figure. There's a lot of fat being head under this robe, by the way. But Beth loves to have our three children help with baking. You know what happens when you get three children helping, helping with baking at the house? Everything's clean. Everything stays in its right place. It's messy. It's incredibly messy. There's, there's flour all over the counter. Multiple utensils get dirty. And if it's chocolate... Hannah and Patrick will have it all over their faces. But the end result is worth it. My wife has time with her children. She's teaching them a skill. And I get cake or cookies out of this. It's a win for everybody. Good things come from messiness. A life in Jesus and for Jesus will get messy. Embracing the light of life in Jesus Christ, turning the world upside down for the glory of God, will get messy, but it's always worth it. And if we want people to see Jesus, that means we have to see him first. The question each of us needs to think through this morning is very simply this. Have you ever asked, Sir, I would see Jesus. Have you ever come to the light of Jesus Christ so you may see your sins and sinfulness but also see the grace of forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Has your world been turned upside down and you now know that all your good works are but filthy rags before the righteous God? You cannot be good enough for heaven. You cannot do enough at Bethel ARP or whatever church you go to. There is not enough good in you to even get you within sight of heaven but because your world's been turned upside down and you see that, you know that's Jesus who opens the gate of heaven for you for that eternal life. That is what has been proclaimed here at Bethel for 200 years. May it continue to be proclaimed from this pulpit in our faith and in our lives that we would see Jesus so our worlds may be turned upside down so we can go out to tell others about Jesus so their worlds will be turned upside down as well. Pray with me.